Good to be with all of you this morning, those of you here, those of you at home or online in some fashion. It's always a joy. Uh, so this morning, Beth and I were actually going to tag team this one, much to her chagrin. Uh, she's like, really? I said, yeah, come on, we got to do this together. So um, what we're going to talk about this morning is really like a continuation from what we talked about last week, uh, given that we celebrated Christ's resurrection, and we want to continue that uh, conversation or continue that, that reality and, and describing some of what that reality means. Before we do that, I'd love to pray, and then uh, we'll get into it. Father, you are the one who is committed to being with us and for us. Thank you that that is true. Thank you for my brothers and sisters who are here in any way. Thank you for those who are here on campus in the parking lot. Thank you for those who are streaming online. Thank you for truly the ways that you help us to be together. And we ask that you continually uh, knit us together. I also pray for... I just pray for strength, I pray for compassion, I pray for gentleness, uh, that we would be reminded of the ways that you are with us and what that means for us being with one another. Uh, again, God, you are so faithful. Help us to bear witness well to that faithfulness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So yes, he is risen, of course. He is risen indeed. There are no balloons, so we won't go to that, go into there. Um, I heard there was some chat on the, the like streaming um, platform where people were trying to, there was actually some description of what was going on, because if you weren't here, it seemed really confusing. So, uh, but I hopefully you got, you got a sense of what was going on because it just kept happening. But anyway, um, we are an Easter people, and what that means is we are people of the resurrection. What that means is that God has brought us together as his people as, as people who are to bear witness to the reality that Jesus Christ is, in fact, risen from the dead. And we heard read this morning some beautiful, I think, vision or imagery of what that means. Uh, and the, it begins, Romans 12, you heard it read, but I'll, re, I'll read it again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So part of what it means to be an Easter people is to be people who are transformed, people whose lives and are the renewal of our mind actually bears witness um, to who God is and as revealed in Jesus, that that is our, our form of worship, the way that we conduct ourselves. And in particular, as, the, as the, the passage continues to go on, which we'll flesh out a little bit more later, is the way that that sort of works itself out is in relationship with one another, that we are one body. So here we are sort of making a transition as a community uh, from being people who weren't gathering for, for a very long time, at least in an embodied way, uh, to gathering more often. And I think there's a real reality that needs to be named as we do that, that in some ways we're going to need to learn how to be together again. Uh, that, that to go from what has taken place to this, this new thing that God is up to, this continuing thing that God is up to, there is that relearning that needs to take place of what does it mean for us to be together again. So as we are kind of in this time of transition, 
coming back together. That's what we want to talk about, actually. How do we learn to be together again? What does it look like for us to be together? What is the vision that God has for us as a church? Because what Romans 12 wants to say is that we are, in fact, to recognize together that we are one body. We are one body. Romans 12, verse 4, For as in one body we have many members, and not all the members have the same function. So we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually we are members of one another. Of course, we know this metaphor, we hear it all the time, that we are one body, but I actually think that that's been tested in some ways to remember what does it mean that we are one body, and then as we continue moving forward, what does it mean for us to press in to live into being one body. And so I guess the question is, as we learn how to be together again, what is the biblical picture of being together? And Beth is, is going to describe that for us. Yeah, I want to dive into this Romans 12 passage a little bit with you this morning. So if you have a Bible, we're going to actually kick off here at verse 10 um, and see if we can't unpack a little bit of this biblical picture of what it looks like to be together. So verse 10 says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. What, what is this brotherly love? Okay, it's, it's a higher, higher level of love, obviously, than like a peer-to-peer friendship can afford. It's something much deeper than that. You've heard the phrase, um, blood is thicker than water, right? Well, I actually read this week that that's a, a complete misappropriation of the original proverb or, or idiom that said the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the, the womb which means that relationships that are formed by some kind of bond, like you think of, uh, you know, brothers in arms, soldiers in the trenches, the the relationships that are formed by some kind of covenantal agreement like that, kind of like what we have here as a church family, are actually supposed to be thicker or become thicker and become deeper than relationships in your actual blood family, the water of the womb. We see this also with Jesus in Matthew 12, right? Where his actual blood family, his blood relatives come to look for him. And he says, who are my brothers and sisters and mother? And he looks at the family of God that are sitting around him. And he says, you guys, you're actually my family. 1 Peter 3, 8 also refers to this brotherly love. It says, have a unity of mind and sympathy and brotherly love. This unity of brothers and sisters comes because we have shared family values, shared goals, shared priorities, right? It's not the unity of mind being spoken of here is not about agreeing politically or covidly or economically. It's being united in our identity as God's children who are all on a journey together, facing in the same direction and moving toward the same destination together. Thank you. These are the crises of meeting outside. Everything blows away, and I also just discovered a huge bee's nest right behind the stage. So Wait, for real? <laughs> yeah. Okay, Sorry. good. I'm glad. Literally in that tree. Good to know. Um, just the mental things that go on whenever you're trying to, you know, preach a sermon. So our unity is found in all being together of like mind headed in the same direction with the same goals, priorities. The love that we're called to in Christ is not a feeling, right? This kind of love that we're being called to, it's an action. All these descriptions that Paul's giving in this passage in Romans 12 are verbs, okay? Let's look at it, starting at verse 10. Listen to these verbs. Be devoted. Honor one another. Have zeal. Have fervor. 
serve, rejoice, be patient, pray, contribute money, practice hospitality, bless, rejoice, mourn, live, be humble, do right, live at peace, overcome. Showing love, living as a true Christian takes physical action. It's not just a passive way of being or a theological mindset that you adopt, right? But when you begin following Christ, it's not just a change in your way of thinking. It's supposed to be a complete and utter change in your way of being, in your way of living. And it is countercultural. It's a countercultural way of living too, right? Dying to self, preferring other people, caring more to see others succeed than myself. That is countercultural. Tell you a quick story. A few years ago, my uh, in-laws moved to Long Beach, and then a couple of years ago, my mother-in-law passed away. And when she did, um, my father-in-law he he didn't really have uh, yet any kind of friends, or certainly not a community like this around him. So some of our friends here at Grace offered to put on a meal train for him and set up a meal train. And I I don't even think he received two or three meals before he said he wanted to shut the whole thing down. And when I asked him why, like people were just trying to come alongside and help him, he couldn't, he basically couldn't cope with the generosity he was being shown. He couldn't understand why these people who he doesn't know, who didn't know him, would, would go out of their way, give their time, give their money, give their energy to bringing him a meal with no expectation on the other end. And I think it honestly made him so uncomfortable he actually shut the meal train off. It was a countercultural thing that actually not offended him, but you know what I mean? Like he couldn't get his head around this concept. Moving on, verse 12, or sorry, verse 13 says, practice hospitality. The translation I'm using here actually says it twice in a row. It literally says, practice hospitality, period, practice hospitality, period. And I'm genuinely not sure if it's a misprint. I've never come across a misprint in the Bible before or if it's just something that we need to hear over and over again, right? Maybe hospitality is something that you do more than once. Our neighbors moved in across the street uh, several years ago, and we invited them for, for dinner. And I could tell the whole night, like, it was kind of weird, right? They, I could tell they were waiting for, like, the big ask or some kind of bait and switch to take place, which never came. And we've done that several times with all the neighbors that have moved in around us in the last few years. And... Honestly, it's never once been reciprocated. I'm not saying we did it for it to be reciprocated, but I have this feeling that the idea of inviting somebody into your home for no agenda, no reason, you know, no Tupperware sales or something like that, is becoming a bit of a lost and a dying art. But it's one of the real markers of the Christian community that we would invite people over with no agenda. It's an identifying mark for how we're supposed to live as Christians. But you'll notice in these verses as well, these aren't just directed outwards. Look at verse 13. It says, share with God's people who are in need. I talked about this a little bit back in January when I preached about the one another aspect of our life together. But it's impossible to practice hospitality on yourself, right? All these directives have an external recipient, which means... We need to have enough connection or presence with people to make that move. In order for me to honor someone above myself, I need to know someone and know them enough to know how to honor or prefer their needs above my own. 
You're a vegetarian? Oh, come on over to my house. I'll put aside some meat for the night and make a vegetarian meal in order to honor and serve you. Or you have a difficult relationship with alcohol? Come on over to my house for a meal. I'll set aside my beer for the night in order to honor and prefer you. Oh, you prefer that I wear a mask around you because you live with your sick mother? That's a touchy subject, isn't it? I would like to prefer and honor other people in the same manner. Moving quickly on. <laughs> Verse 16 says, live in harmony with one another. Again, this is not about single-minded ideologies. It means living in harmony even though you disagree. It doesn't say make sure you agree with everybody. It doesn't say come to church so that we can all have agreement together and have this exact same way of looking at things and doing things. It says live in harmony even when, even if you disagree, and that will create harmony. I want to show you this by way of a musical example. I'm going to move over to the piano, Jake, if you'll unmute me there. A um, little bit of music theory for you right here. I'm going to play two notes. These two notes do not sound good together, correct? Thank you. Dan's nodding his head and covering his ears. For those of you who do understand a little bit of musical theory, I'm playing basically an octave and a half step above it, right? It's a flat nine. It's uh, the equivalent of playing like a C and a C sharp together on the piano, the white note right next to a black note. It's a clash, right? They, they do not sound good together, these two notes. When I fill it in, though, listen to this. The same two notes exist, bottom and top, but when you fill it in with these other notes in between, all of a sudden, there's a possibility that those two notes sound better together, right? And even more so when you use it as a transition into something else to, on its way to another chord. My point being, these two notes alone do not sound good. Filled in with these other three in between them, all of a sudden, the dissonance becomes harmonic, right? Starts to sound slightly harmonious. And it occurs to me that there's a, a real significance of the other notes at play here. It requires other people, other notes, to be part of our harmonizing, our ability to work together. To make these two dissonant notes work together requires three other notes in between them. And I wonder if there's something to that here. The dissonance, the disharmony that might exist can become harmonious when there are other people in between that sort of help to fill out the chord, fill out the gap. Verse 16 also says here, associate with people of low position. Some translations say associate with the lowly. Where do we find such people when most of us live and work and have our being amongst those who are in similar socioeconomic positions as us? This is supposed to be one of the compelling features of the church gathered, right? That people from all statuses in life can be together and be like leveled or equal here. And I don't want to just breeze by this verse, because this is one of those verses that you hear as a Christian, you go, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm supposed to associate with the lowly. But again, th these verses aren't necessarily just talking about serving outward. It's easy to say the lowly might be, you know, the homeless or the, the people um, living in those kind of dire homeless circumstances outside of these walls. But I would, I would ask you to ponder, like, who are the, the lowly or those of low position here among us? 
Usually that's considered to be people who are, you know, powerless in some sense. It could, it honestly, could be kids, um, could be people of different sort of mental health situations. Um, could be, it could be people in different socioeconomic positions than us. But I wonder who, who the lowly are among us. And some of the work I feel like I've had to do in this last year is kind of looking at people and saying, somehow, some way, you are made in the image of God, and I need to do the patient work of uncovering that. This verse 16 isn't even saying, like, go out and help the lowly. Go do things that help them come up the ladder a little bit. The three translations I read last night that say, in this verse, say, associate with the lowly or adjust yourself to. Another translation says, make friends with, make real friends with, it actually says. Paul's saying that in Christ we're all equal and the distinctions of race and class and gender and status don't matter because we are all equal as sons and daughters. So who am I then to look around a room, to look around a church and go, ugh, kind of rather not end up in a relationship with that person. It's hard work, but it's the right work to do in order for us to start to reclaim this idea of belonging together. Yeah, I think it is the right work, and it's so important. It's actually, I mean, it's essential to our witness together as a community. You know, Leslie Newbegin, who is a missionary, uh, says this about the Christian community. He says, the primary reality of which we have to take account in seeking for a Christian impact on public life is the Christian congregation. How is it possible that the gospel should be credible and that people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross? The only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. So what is Newbegin getting at? He's getting at the, the, the fact that we, as a Christian community, and the way that we are with one another, makes intelligible the gospel of Jesus. How we are with one another says something about whether or not Jesus has actually been raised from the dead. Like, how we are together is of absolute importance to the work that God wants to do with us, through us, and in the world. But of course, there are barriers to this. What this beautiful vision of Romans 12 and what Beth described and, and teasing out some of those things, there are barriers to this. And I just want to talk a little bit about what those barriers are. Because things get in the way. Things have gotten in the way. I mean, the first and obvious thing the, of what's gotten in the way of this reality is, well, that we haven't been together very much for like a year, which is crazy. And some of you at home, you've, you've still, you feel, well, I'm still not together. I'm still not with you. I mean, if you think about the time that has gone on, time has happened, things have happened, life has continued, and yet it has not continued together. And so there's been a real reality of losing a sense of how to relate together. We do not learn how to relate to each other by thinking about how to relate to each other. We learn how to relate to each other by actually relating, by making mistakes, by fumbling through it, by offering forgiveness by seeking reconciliation and restoration. That is actually how Christian community is formed and continues to be formed and shaped around the gospel. It is lived. It is actually lived. So as we think about that this last year, as we think about actually not being together, we can see some of this deterioration of harmony and of patience. 
there's been a deterioration, at least, of a sense of being a one, one body because of what's gone on. So as we transition, we didn't want to just assume that we know how to do that again, but actually being, being sensitive to the fact that, no, this is going to take some time and some work and some actual commitment to seeking after harmony and patience. Also, what's happened over the last year in 2020 is that so much of our interaction was pushed online, which is not good. If you've spent any sort of time on Facebook or on Instagram and you've spent any sort of time like me reading through comments, you think, oh no, there's some work to do. We need to have some forgiveness. We need to actually seek reconciliation. And so because of that, because of our interactions being pushed in almost this online format and losing a sense of, of seeing one another, we then begin to tell only one story about a person or one story about a group or one story about even yourself. And so with that, even the sense of, of this deterioration of harmony and of patience with one another, of actually of, of being together as one body, there's also been a tendency of being self-referential. Perhaps this is true of you. I'm confessing it has been true of me. Because we've not been able to be around with one another, or at least in a, a consistent way, it becomes, there's a lot of focus on self, or a lot of focus on the, the, the nuclear family, which I'm not actually saying is necessarily bad. I think some good work has been done, some good uncovering, and uh, some good reflection has taken place. But there's also been a sense in which, because so much of our lives have been disrupted, there's been a, there's been a tendency of, of turning inward, but also turning inward and not being honest perhaps about our own pain or about our own loss. And then what happens is we then project onto other people almost this expectation of making things better. Have you, has that been true for you? It's been true for me. I've, I, like 2020, if, like you, was not good. And it was so hard. And often I expected so many other people, like at least uh, four other people who live in my home, to make my life better in some way. I just put it on them that I needed them to make me feel better. And they can't possibly do that. But we have so many different pockets of people where that has been, that has been the, the case. And certainly, I think you could probably feel that about the church. We could probably feel that about a congregation. You could probably feel that about one another. And so there's this real sense that I think we, we just need to be honest about that fact as we turn a corner and transition to being together what does that mean for us to relearn some of those things, to actually own our own pain, to own our own loss, and to be honest about that, and to actually share in that with one another? Like, that is an absolute, I think, gift and call that God has given to us and can give to us. And because of this self-referential tendency, um, which I hope you hear me saying I am of utmost, like, the worst about, this self-referential tendency... I think it, 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 it then begins to breed a sense of, of perhaps pride, or at least it erodes a sense of humility, a sense of, of, of um, just being open and being empathetic and being compassionate and being gentle. It erodes a sense of dependence. And so I think some of that also has taken place, perhaps is taking place. And so it's, what I guess what I'm saying is there's been an opportunity for this fertile ground um, to, to create a sense of, of pride that I think we also need to be aware of and think about. And I know you want to talk about pride, yeah. not because you're prideful necessarily, no. you just want to no, talk I about No, I think I'm the expert on this. So, I, I th you know, I think that 
the opposite of dependence is pride, right? And I think the way that that can work itself out in a community and has a little bit in this community is, is like this assurance or certainty that I or that each of us knows, knows best, right? We've had, a, I think, also around here a little bit of a, a pride in our intellectual strength. You know, Nancy Moore, we did a, a survey here a few years ago, and she pointed out um, that our congregation, it was, she describes us as thinky people. It's kind of the way that she refers to us as thinky people. And there's nothing wrong with being educated and intelligent, but when that might become an, ob an obstacle is when each one of us thinks that we know best, and then we kind of curate our responses or our involvement or our commitment or our action based on what we think we know rather than this idea of deferring to anyone else. And it really comes down to trust, right? Trust of God that he has the ultimate control and say in our lives and also trust of others that, that somehow some, some, somebody else might know better or at least have a different way of looking at things um, or approaching something that might actually be better for us. And I think this does point back to the first verse of this chapter. You read it at the beginning. It talks about being living sacrifices, right? Um, I urge you, brothers, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This idea of a living sacrifice being the consistent laying down of self. Tim Keller refers to it like this. A living sacrifice means every day, every hour, deliberately, consciously, continually, and perpetually offering yourself to God. To live a Christian life, we have to put to death the right to live as you choose. The idea that you belong to yourself and that you know best. I think of Abraham and Isaac when I think about this idea of a living sacrifice. Abraham did not prefer what he wanted in that moment over obedience to what God was asking of him to do. Even though what God was asking him seems so absurd and actually contrary to God, to who Abraham knew God to be, Abraham still believed and trusted and preferred, you know, God's way over his own. So, yeah. Yeah, and so what does it look like to take this seriously? What does it look like to actually be people who love God and love neighbor? What does it look like to be um, people who live out Jesus' kingdom vision of of those who are poor in spirit, those who are meek, those who are humble? What does that look like? And what are some of the next steps um, for us in, in moving toward that? And that's what we want to talk about a little bit this morning um, for the, the remaining minutes, which won't be long, especially as I see the kids running toward us. Um, so, the, so the question is, so yeah, so what? Like, what are, we, what are we doing? What does it look like to live into Romans 12? I think the first thing to do is to be, what I alluded to earlier, is to somehow... Um, be reflective and, and own kind of where we are. And I ask that question, like, where are you? Like, where are you in your spiritual life? Where are you in your relationships with others? Um, a sense of, of where, where truly do you find yourself now? As we are moving into and transitioning to being together more often, that is so important to take stock of and to consider. But also, where are you with others? Are there things that you have been holding against a brother or sister? I remember one of the first times we came together in person, I was so nervous about seeing some particular people because, uh, again, of just all of the things that have happened and, and things that you hear or, or things that have been said. And I realized, oh, man, there are some things I need to uncover. There are some things I need to actually acknowledge. There are probably some people I need to move toward and confess 
and seek some reconciliation. And so I guess that's my question for you. Are there people, are there relationships where the Spirit of God might be prompting you to seek after some reconciliation, some restoration? Is there some work to be done in your own heart to bring that before God, but also not just in your own heart, but actual in flesh and blood relationships? I think that the Spirit of God might be wanting to do that with us and through us. So that's one thing. That's one actual practice is to take some time and to consider the, the, the weight of that and to be honest about that. Um, another practice uh, that we are wanting to push into is, is belonging together. That's something that we've, we've been talking about more recently. What does it look like for us to belong together? What does it look like for us to be people who learn from Jesus how to live and love like Jesus through our relationships and our community that are formed around certain ways of being together, what does that look like? What does it look like to belong together? And so you've heard us talk about small groups and wanting to, to move toward being, a, being people who, who have opportunities and pathways where people can actually have committed um, ongoing relationships with one another. Well, we were talking about that earlier as wanting to do it as soon as the end of this month, and we realized, no, I think that's just too quick in order to get everybody involved. We want it to be very clear. We want the pathways to be very, to be very obvious, and we want everybody who wants to be involved to be involved. And I guess when we say small groups, and we've heard this from some of you and we are listening, is that there's some past trauma, actually, about smaller groups in this church, past baggage that people carry about well, I don't want to be left out. How do I get involved? I don't want to be one of those people who everybody else seems to be um, great and wonderful, but then where am I in that process? And so we are actually taking steps, very intentional steps, and we are working um, very diligently to over the next few months to create those pathways so that everybody by the beginning of fall actually has a place and an opportunity to connect. But we don't want to just say, okay, well, it's going to happen then. We actually want to be moving into and pressing into those things now and so we're, as we, we're going to transition to meeting three times a month and not on the fourth Sundays. And on those fourth Sundays, what we're asking you to do is to, over the next few months um, is to consider getting together with others. Consider getting together with others in order to talk about, to discuss, to pray through some of these things that we've been talking about, about how we belong together, about living into the vision of Romans 12, of being one body in Christ. And so we're asking you to consider doing that and getting people together as soon as the fourth Sunday of this month, the end of April. And, and then over the next few months and, and as we move toward the summer, again, making those pathways very clear so that everybody can participate and get involved in a small group by fall. And so that's going to start at the end, again, of April. That's April 25th. And we're going to be doing that on the fourth Sundays over the next few months. So those are the two practices we're actually asking you to consider. We're actually we're asking you here to consider that. Those of you at home, we're asking you to consider that, whether in person or over Zoom, is getting people together to, to, to press into this type of community um, before it becomes a more opportunity for, for everybody. And so I guess the words that we have for us as we reflect, as we are honest about where we are and what God is doing and where he's taking us is, is just to ask you to come along with us, to, to be with us. I think your presence speaks to the fact that you are. Those of you who are online, the same thing. And we are so grateful for that. But we really feel and sense that God is doing something and has been. And I think it's been challenging and tough. But we, we think that it's, I don't know, we think that God holds us 
This is his church. We think that God has been faithful and would continue to be faithful. So, so grateful to be in it with you. But these are the things we feel like God has been impressing upon us, wanting to share with you, um, our community, our family, and hope that God begins to build into it and take us somewhere. So we're going to actually transition into the bread and cup because as we talk about the vision of life together in Romans 12, the table, the elements, the giving of Christ of himself to us is really the basis of our being together, the basis of our love for one another. So we're going to do it in a different way. There aren't going to be servers at the table. We're still going to ask that you would... uh, that you would acknowledge and, and be sensitive to uh, just the various um, considerations regarding COVID. But we're, we're asking you to come and get the elements. Uh, and those of you at home online, I think you can do this in the chat feature as well. Um, but those, come and get the elements and then turn to a family or to a person behind you and, and just let them know what these elements represent that the body and blood of Christ are given for you. Simply say that to somebody. Look them in the eyes. Look, at, look to a family and say the body and blood of Christ given for you. So you, so, uh, you guys can stand now. And then as soon as... You're going to play music, right? As soon as music begins, you can come to the table as you'd like. Don't take the elements there. Bring them back. Keith Dowds is going to come up and lead us in communion. If you need those words again, the body and blood of Christ given for you.